Success, said Leonard Cohen, is survival. Well, what do I really need to add to that? I'm Rav Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story. We interrupt your regularly scheduled programming for part five of the live Survival Zionism series. If you like this Jewish Story live content, I invite you to join my weekly upcoming class beginning on August 8th. You can send me an email at ravmikefoyer at gmail.com, or you can find all the registration information at Facebook, Rav Mike Foyer, or at my website, jewishstory.co. Hope to see you there. So where are we? This is the second to last class. The sort of focus of this class is shifting to American Jewry, right? Up until now, we took a couple of classes to talk about the internal and external conflicts that led to the sort of emergence of survival Zionism pre-war in the Yishuv, in the land of Israel, right? We spent the last two classes touching on uh, some of the elements of the struggle within Europe for survival, um, with the focus really being on uh, the the rise of a militancy and the sort of um, small but very potent portion of European Jewry that chose physical struggle um, as a response to its elimination. Um, and what I want to do in today's class is turn the lens on American Jewry. And then in the last class, I'll bring us back to the land of Israel. Um, and uh, we're not going to be able to give it a full treatment, but we'll speak about what's known as the revolt, right? The sort of rising tide of uh, a war of liberation against the British colonial oppressor. I just like to say that because it feels good. Um, so, Tov, the, in the meantime, what I want to do today um, is speak in the context of, uh, yeah, we'll speak about what's coming next uh, in, in a little while, but I, I can't do that now. What, what I want to talk today is in the context of this idea, remember the class is about the emergence of survival Zionism. Um, and, you know, American Zionism is a beast unto itself. Its full discussion really lies beyond the scope of what we're doing here today. But one thing I want to just point out is that there's often a very facile contrast made between power and powerlessness, right? I mean, to be a Zionist is to believe in power, right? Strong, upright Jews in their land, and to sort of be a non-Zionist or an anti-Zionist is to believe in powerlessness. Well, uh, we'll see a bit of that as we go forward today, but what I want to point out as a frame for what we're going to discuss is it's always important to remember that a posture of powerlessness, a posture of powerlessness, is actually a strategy for survival, right? Think about playing dead. Right? If, a, if, if you're ever in the woods and a black bear approaches you, you should make yourself as big as possible and a lot of noise. If you're ever in the woods and a grizzly bear approaches you, play dead. Right? Um, that, that has to do with the relationship to power. And what we're going to see today is that um, there's a major voice within the Zionist world in America for whom um, some element of powerlessness was built into their understanding of what survival actually meant. So I want you to remember that as part of the frame because, you know, survival Zionism is a complex beast as is true of most, uh, you know, organ organisms or organizations. So, okay, we're gonna start with the personality of Rabbi Stephen Wise. We've spoken in the past uh, about his full story, so uh, I'm not going to detail it now, but if you're not familiar, Rabbi Stephen Wise rose as a rebel through the reform rabbinate. What do I mean? Right? Perhaps the best known example of this is in January of 1906, he published a letter in the New York Times, already a little bit edgy for a American rabbi at the beginning of the 20th century, 
that raise, quote, the question of whether the pulpit shall be free or whether the pulpit shall not be free and by reason of its loss of freedom, reft of its power for good. I read it to you both because you hear his rhetoric and the way in which he is quintessentially American in that sense, but also in, the, in, in, in his stance when he founded soon after this announcement, what he calls the free synagogue as an anti-establishment sort of countercurrent within the reform movement. Because Wise believed that reform movement, which at the time was based in Cincinnati, um, led by middle to upper class German Jews, had lost its relevance and therefore much of its vibrancy in light of two things, the sort of uh, political and social changes in the United States, and most importantly for our story, the new demographic reality where you know, a million plus Eastern European Jews had moved to America, most of them living, literally most of them in New York City, and were rapidly becoming the defining element in American Jewish life. And so what Wise did was he put forward a vision for liberal Judaism, which is what most people associate with the reform movement today, that was he considered more modern and American. And liberal is the term was understood in its day. Um, that's one piece just to give you some context for where we're going. Is we, when we speak about his relationship with, with uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, you'll understand why that's important. In addition to his rebellion against this sort of classic reform, what's called the high reform infrastructure, Wise was a Zionist. He was a committed, passionate Zionist, and that was extremely anti-establishment within the reform movement of his day. And he was an early adopter of Zionism. He was one of the founders of the New York Federation of Zionists in 1897, right? Remembering that that's the same year of the first Zionist Congress. He was, in fact, a delegate and the secretary for English language in the second Zionist Congress. And he served as the president of the Federation of American Zionists um, in close cooperation with Herzl until his death in 1904. So, so he is an, a Zionist of almost an unimpeachable pedigree, right? In addition to that, he is deeply American and committed to classic liberal values. In, between the years of 1911 and 1914, he becomes a founding member of the NAACP, right? which of course nominally has nothing to do with Jewish life, but in his eyes had everything to do with it because he believed that the struggle for one minority was a struggle for all minorities. Um, and basically he worked his way up to becoming one of the nation's most prominent rabbis. In 1922, he founds his own seminary, the Jewish Institute of Religion in New York City. Remember he's moved his base to New York City because that's where the Jews are, right? Um, um, and uh, that eventually gets folded into Hebrew Union College after his death, but when he was alive, it was really a driving institution that was pushing the reform movement to take a very different stance on what it meant to be an American and a Jew. So it makes sense that he would be a natural candidate for founding chairman of the American Jewish Congress. If you recall, we spoke about the American Jewish Congress. It began as a, an ad hoc group which wanted to send representatives to the Paris Peace Conference of 1919, right? and then evolved into a freestanding organization by 1928. And it's important, what was its purpose? Because the American Jewish Congress plays a role in our story going ahead. The purpose of the American Jewish Congress was to defend Jewish interests at home and abroad through public policy advocacy, diplomacy, legislation, and the courts, right? This is the first time there is any body which claims to represent American Jewry as a whole within the political, diplomatic, and legal spheres. 
right? And, you know, we're going to see they were somewhat self-appointed and that will pose its own problems. Not in addition to becoming uh, founding chairman of the American Jewish Congress in 28, Rabbi Wise also became involved in democratic politics in that year when he backed Franklin Delano Roosevelt in his successful run for governor of New York. Now that was a big step into politics. You should know that Wise was far to the left on almost every issue of FDR, but it felt that FDR was a, a powerful and important candidate for the things which he believed in and uh, therefore backed him, but he didn't support FDR's first attempt to get the Democratic nomination for president in 1932, where he indeed got not only the, the uh, Democratic nomination, but also won the presidency. And he, he, he didn't back him because basically he felt like FDR hadn't done a good job as governor in New York, in particular in fighting corruption. But, you know, they got over that apparently because by 1936, Rabbi Stephen Wise was a firm backer and increasingly personal friend, or at least personal associate, um, of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, of, of the president, right, who, um, if you're familiar with American history at that point, was in growing increasingly powerful. Now, in 1936, that same year, that Wise really cemented his relationship with FDR, and he did it because of the New Deal. Again, there's only so much of American history we can teach here, but but remembering that the, the New Deal was, um, it was a, in many ways the origins of any aspects of a welfare state within American democracy. Uh, it was a direct attempt by FDR and those around him to address the economic disaster of the Great Depression. Um, and since Stephen Wise was more than half a socialist, he felt that backing a president who was going to open up such social welfare programs um, was, was worthwhile. So also in 1936, of course, at this point, the Hitler has risen, risen to power in 1933. The Nuremberg Laws, which were the sort of big public declaration of the exclusion of the Jews from the public sphere and perhaps even from the social fabric altogether within Germany is in 1935. In 1936, in Geneva, in August of 1936, is the inaugural convention of the World Jewish Congress. It was attended by 280 delegates from 32 countries. Sounds like a global effort, but in reality, it was in many ways simply an international branch of the American Jewish Congress. And therefore it should come as no surprise that it's found, one of its founding members and first president was, I'll give you three guesses, the first two don't count, Rabbi Stephen Wise, right? Um, now the mission of the WJC, the World Jewish Congress, was to find a comprehensive solution for the masses of Eastern and Central European Jews through the same tools that the American Jewish Congress employed, public policy and diplomacy. Of course, at this point, there's no international court, so they can't go to the courts. Um, and the League of Nations still exists, but is being shown to be um, sort of increasingly irrelevant on the diplomatic stage. Um, they're in interested in it. It's, it's noteworthy that their rhetoric, at least, is about the democratization of Jewish life. They want to create a forum within which Jews are no longer ruled by sort of parnasim, like rich you know, sort of like community rulers and intellectually, but rather sort of there are more voices in the process. I say nominally, because as we'll see, what, uh, you know, Wise was far more interested in the idea of democracy than its practice. Um, and, uh, and they basically wanted to rescue Jews and oppose the Nazis. They didn't engage directly with Aliyah, which is an important piece here. Even though many of the founders were prominent Zionists, they felt that Aliyah was ideologically driven, meaning 
Jews leaving Central Europe to go to Israel was not in their eyes a um, sort of refugee issue. It was an, an ideological issue. Those who choose to make their life in the land of Israel, that concern belonged to the Jewish agency at that point in their eyes. And therefore they stayed out of it. They were looking for a comprehensive solution and not looking to the land of Israel necessarily to provide it. Um, if you want to really understand what was going on, I can actually give you, a, a, with the World Jewish Congress, I can give you a quote from Horace Callan. You remember Horace Callan? He's a philosopher, sociologist, professor, um, who we spoke about in the context of his um, sort of tossed salad model of, of a cultural amalgamation in America as opposed to the melting pot, right? He addressed actually the preparatory conference a couple of years before the WJC was actually founded. He argued a very interesting idea. He says that the process of globalization and democratization have destroyed the Jewish solidarity of the Middle Ages. I mean, it's fascinating. And it's essential to establish the WJC in order to rebuild it. Now notice, this is the assumption, which is the dominant assumption, even when Callan was a Zionist, remember, he was an ardent Zionist, amongst Jews all over the world, that the, that the Yishuv, the settlement of Jews in the land of Israel was an important piece, but was never going to supply the base for a unified Jewish life. In their eyes, the World Jewish Congress would do that. And I emphasize it to you, first of all, because it's just important to know for context, but also because to remind you, it's only after the destruction of Europe that Zionism really emerges as what most people see the, the viable vehicle for Jewish national life. And that will be still in distinction to America. Because in America, this idea of the American Jewish Congress, which like I pointed out to you, is virtually identical with the World Jewish Congress. I mean, Stephen Wise is the president of the American Jewish Congress and the chairman of the executive committee of the World Jewish Congress. And in 1936, the World Jewish Congress moves its offices to New York because as the, as the situation in Europe is getting worse, there's, you know, it, it's its safe haven. And what's emerging at this point is the model that we're familiar with today, which is that there are basically two models of, of life. There's, um, dare I say, indigenous Jewish life in the land of Israel. I'm not allowed to say that, right? But we'll just say Jewish life in its national embodiment in the land of Israel and Jewish life in its diaspora embodiment within America. Obviously, even today, there are Jews all over the world, but in terms of, of weight of sheer numbers and um, sort of uh, cultural momentum, it's basically American Israel. And, and this is what you're hearing now, that the solution to the, the breakdown of Jewish solidarity, which it's interesting that he puts the ideal in the Middle Ages, right, caused by globalization, democratization, the ideas of Horace Callan and, and Stephen Wise is a global Jewish Congress, not moving to Israel, even though both of them are Zionists. So that's an important piece. Um, I, I will indeed mention Nachum Goldman in about uh, 30 seconds. <laughs> that was it, where I'm going next, right? So as long, oh, that was directly to me. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't everywhere. So Israel just asked me, can you discuss this without mentioning Nachum Goldman? And the answer is no, because the next line on my page says, why is that a partner in the founding of the World Jewish Congress? And in many ways, um, he, the driving thinker behind the construction of the World Jewish Congress was uh, German Zionist Nachum Goldman. Now, he's going to have a rich future in the Jewish story of, of, in particular, in the task of holding the disparate parts of the Zionist movement together. Uh, we're not going to go into his full story because it would take us well beyond the scope of our time period right now. But nonetheless, um, Nachum Goldman escapes Germany in 1935. As I said, he was a, he was a prominent member of the German 
Zionist movement. He escapes in 35, and he could really be called an early adopter of the awareness that, of the Nazi threat. And again, I just keep saying it again and again, this seems bizarre to us sitting where we are with the information we have, et cetera, who, especially escaping Germany in 35, wouldn't already have assumed that the Germans were a threat. But of course, everybody knew they were a threat. They just didn't realize the extent of the threat that they posed. Um, so he was an early adopter. And when he came to America, was driven by the sense that basically it was, you know, pull things together or, you know, we, we, we will, you know, we'll survive together. We'll hang separately, as they say, right? Stand together or hang separately, whatever the expression is. And, and when he got to America, he was deeply disappointed because what he found um, was that the sort of post-Louis Brandeis phase of American Zionism was fragmented and, and the leadership of American Zionism was divided and essentially impotent at a time in which they really needed to be strong and concerted in their focus. So together with Stephen Wise, with Rabbi Stephen Wise, he attempted to basically gather the reins. And that's important because part of the story that's coming is a somewhat, um, let's shall we say, autocratic face which comes out from Rabbi Stephen Wise, which he holds responsibility for in the face of history, but it needs to be appreciated that he and Nachum Goldman worked extremely hard to try to create a structure that they felt could legitimately save the Jews of Europe. This is part of the story of survival Zionism. Um, so another piece that Goldman really brings into our story, even though Rabbi Wise certainly agreed, um, is he carried the essence of what I would call Stadlanut politics into the mix of American Zionism. His mantra, I'll explain what I mean by Stadlanut in one second, but his mantra is, quote, in exerting political pressure at home, one must always be cautious and tactful or risk incurring the hostility of influential diplomatic figures. Meaning push, fight, but don't rock the boat. Right, um, and that is shtadlan. Shtad, shtadlan, the shtadel in Hebrew is to make an effort, right? And a shtadlan is a model of leadership which really emerges out of the Middle Ages. You know, Jewish communities, um, and, and it reaches its uh, essence in what's known as the court Jew. People are familiar, or those who have been in this class together long enough, we've spoken about it. But essentially, it's it's someone who is wealthy and powerful, a Jew. Who is wealthy and powerful and serves as the unofficial representative of their community based on their personal relationship with non-Jews in power, right? So it might be um, a wealthy banker who has the ear of the prince because he holds his debts. It might be, um, you know, the, the, the successful businessman who is a purveyor for the king's army and is able to supply him with what he needs to wage war and therefore is able to get what he wants in order to protect his community. But the key is the Stadlan, on one hand, has no democratic relationship to his constituency. He wasn't chosen or elected. It was his power and personality that brought him to the fore. And second of all, he has no real official standing. Everything he's able to accomplish is based on his personal relationship with people in power, which means you have to be careful not to rock the boat. And as we're going to see, this model of Stadlanut of personal relationship as the source of real power is the model that Rabbi Stephen Wise will attempt to use, to what degree of uh, efficacy we shall see, um, in engaging the growing awareness of what's actually happening to European Jewry and trying to push the American government to take a stance upon it. So 
I mean, I do want to say in honor of uh, the fact that Israel asked the question, Nachman, Gold, Nachman Goldman has a, a, a deep, rich story of his own, but there's only so many people's stories that we can tell. So for now, he's going to remain a little bit of a placeholder. If we get to the uh, later episodes of the 50s, he's actually got quite a bit to say. Um, so so um, it was actually Goldman who represented the WJC, the World Jewish Congress, um, at the failed Avion Conference. You recall that was the... Um, the conference in France in July of 1938, which attempted to um, to find a solution to the Jewish refugees of Europe and failed, or not of Europe, sorry, originally of Germany and Austria. It failed when the Polish government jumped up and said, hey, if you're gonna, if the Germans and Austrians can get rid of their Jews, so can we. And, and the idea of trying to find a home for three, four million Jews suddenly just became an absurdity, and therefore the conference broke up without any solutions. He, like Golda Meir, was a silent observer. He was there on behalf of the WJC. She was on there on behalf of the Jewish agency. Neither was permitted to speak. Both simply bore witness to the abandonment of their people, if I dare be so um, dramatic. Now, the that abandonment begs a question, which is what do you do when you perceive yourself to be powerless in the face of larger men. Here, picture Goldman and Golda Meir at this conference. The representatives of the world's most powerful nations are there and they are either unable or unwilling, the difference at this point is irrelevant, to find a home for the world's Jews. Furthermore, let's not forget that it, by 1938, the British hadn't completely locked the gates of the land of Israel but they were closing quickly. It's really in 1939, as we spoke about with the McDonald White Paper, that the gates were fully locked, but they're essentially only a crack of light left, right? And they have a sense, basically, that they are being left to die. The question is, what do you do, right? Especially what do you do if your entire approach to power and problem solving is the Stadlan's approach, which is, which is accept the limits of your power. Because if you don't accept the limits of your power, then you will have nothing, right? Picture in the Middle Ages, the wealthy um, sort of army purveyor. Oh, sure, he feeds the king's soldiers and he provides his cavalry with horses. But if he walks into that room and starts talking truth to power and telling the king that he's a rotten anti-Semite and that the Jews are human beings just like everybody else, what's the king gonna do? Get another purveyor. And even if he's going to lose out in the short term, Right, the, the reality is, is that the Stadlan has very little real base on which to stand. And the question is, was that true of the Jews of America in the mid 20th century, early to mid 20th century, right? You know, when he dressed the ZOA, the Zionist Organization of America in October of 1942. Now remember that the Wannsee Conference is in January of 1942 and Jan Karski's publication of, you know, published by the, the Polish government in exile about the mass extermination of the Jews of Poland in occupied, occupied, of the Jews of occupied Poland by Germany is published in December of 1942, right? So he's addressing the ZOA, the Zionist Organization of America in October of 1942. Now they've already heard the reports as we'll see, but no one knows exactly what's going on. He says the following, our generation is in the tragic position that one half of the generation is being slaughtered before our eyes and the other half, other half has to sit down and cannot prevent this catastrophe. And the question is, was that really true? Yeah, I understand that's what he believed. 
And you understand how the, the Stadlan model led him to believe that. You know the old saying, if you know, when your only ha- tool is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. When your only capacity to exercise power is through Stadlanut, then you must always see in front of your face the limits of your power because a Stadlan that doesn't constantly see the limits of their power loses their power altogether. The second that they're kicked out of the king's presence because they went one step too far, as we say, they've lost everything. And the question is, is that really true here? Because notice he just says, has to sit down and cannot prevent this catastrophe. And now I will formulate the accusation, which is leveled increasingly by historians, and even in its day. The accusation is basically that the, the American Jewish Congress and the World Jewish Congress, which are functionally at this point the same thing, cooperated with the other Jewish elites of America and with the United States administration, of uh, FDR's administration, to basically mute the American Jewish reaction to the Holocaust, right? In, even though they were increasingly aware of the full dimensions of what was happening to European Jewry. I mean, listen to Goldman's quote, the tragic position one half of the generation is being slaughtered before our eyes. He says this in October, 1942. The other half has to sit down and cannot prevent it. So we have to ask the question, is it true? Is this, is this accusation accurate? Now, the accusation comes with three explanations, which are important to remember, and they're essentially the frame for what we're discussing today. Right? Meaning, why would they do such a thing? They weren't evil people. I want to be clear on that. You know, the, the, These were Jews who, as I said, powerlessness, a posture of powerlessness is a strategy of survival. And it's not just a strategy of survival. It was one of the primary strategies of survival that Jews in diaspora used for 2,000 years. And to think that you can just let that go or that it's not not effective is a mistake. It's a misunderstanding. Obviously, as we're going to see, the the Zionist Jew has a very different attitude. The Israeli Zionist Jew, or not Israeli, the the, uh, the, uh, Yeshuv, Hebrew Jew, as they like to call themselves at the time, has a very different attitude, and we will see that shortly. So there are three factors that historians want to claim might have motivated if one indeed accepts the accusation that the Jewish leadership of America was an active participant in suppressing the reaction of American Jewry to the Holocaust. One was fear, right? There was a fear that any aggressive protest would stimulate domestic anti-Semitism, and we'll look at that in a second. Another one was, was worry. They were worried that public Jewish criticism would undermine their relationship with FDR. That's the Stad Banut model, right? If you start making waves and lots of noise, then we have no power at all. So there's a fear of anti-Semitism. Basically, it all boils down to fear in the end. But there's a worry that they will lose their connection to the administration if they publicly criticize, right? And there's the self-interest. They want to protect their own leadership positions from the more activist elements that are growing within American Jewish life. And we're not going to discuss it now, but but uh, Abba Hillel Silver, Rabbi Abba Hillel Silver, is, is the foil to Rabbi Stephen Wise within the reform movement's Zionist movement. And, and uh, um, those who are familiar with the history of American Zionism will know that he indeed in the end manages to usurp the position of power and representative big Jew within the, uh, within the uh, American Zionist movement. But he also, his story lies ahead. So again, there's a fear of anti-Semitism. There's a fear of losing their, their ability to influence the administration through much, too much public criticism. And there's a fear of losing their own personal positions. So let's look at each in turn. First of all, I'm going to pause. I've been speaking straight for a half hour. 
do, do people need clarifications? I want to want to ask some questions. Yeah, Joanne, I saw the hand. Yeah, you're muted, Joanne. If you're speaking, yeah. I can't hear you. Gee, I'm sorry. It's not exactly a clarification. It, it was more, and maybe you'll be getting to this, more of a, um, a perspective issue. In other words, like this developing horror in Europe was huge for us. For the president of the United States, it was an issue. We're going to speak about that. Okay. I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm gonna. I'm really more interested. It's the Jewish story, so I'm mostly interested in the dynamic amongst the Jews. But yes, we're gonna to have to talk about what was FDR's thinking. Um, by the way, um, the Israel recommended a very powerful book here in the in the chat, which you should send everyone. You say those things, which is Tom Segev's The Seventh Million. Um, it is a very important and not so easy book to read. Just to warn you now, um, it can be quite disturbing in places. Other. Other uh, way I see from Matt, true that there was massive anti-Semitism. I'm, I'm about to speak about that right now. That's uh, meaning I just gave you the list of these three fears and I want to explore them a little bit each. Other, um, other pieces, things people want clarified? Yes, Robert. Uh, the, the problem in, in my own mind is that perhaps Nachum Goldman was absolutely correct in saying, uh, you know, half of us can only watch. Uh, well, I'm going to challenge that thought. That's exactly what I want to look at now. Okay. Because we're going to see that that there's a whole other approach that certain American Jews took. Um, okay. We good to go? Let's do it. So first of all, again, fear of rising anti-Semitism, fear of losing their ability to influence administration at all if they enter into public criticism and fear of losing their own position. So first of all, uh, anti-Semitism. Now, remember that in the 1930s, the United States was a deeply troubled country, right? And, and um, the context there is very important. I mean, the, the economy was totally paralyzed by the Great Depression. We're talking about nearly 25% of the workforce unemployed. And, and frankly, a good section of the country is still licking its wounds, physical, psychological, or otherwise, political from World War One. It's not so long since World War One had ended. Um, and therefore there's a deeply isolationist element which grips the country. An isolation element which is an essential element of American culture in many ways. Remember rugged individualism, if you're familiar with this idea that underlies the sort of classic frontier culture of America. I mean, what is the desire of rugged individualism except to be left alone? And so on, on, on the national level, isolationism to a certain degree is a is a um, characteristically American expression, which has its roots in the most simple sense of the fact that America is isolated from the rest of the world in its history, right? People left Europe and like went far away, right? It, it, in order to get there. And what's, what's important is that to some degree, that's also the attraction it held for Jews. I mean, America as the golden Medina, you know, the place of big economic opportunity as a refuge from Europe, et cetera, is very true. But don't forget also America was a place you could go far away and leave the past behind, right? Whether it was tradition, whether it was your family, whether it was the hatred deeply rooted in European culture. And so that sense of, um, of isolationism was actually shared by many Americans and Jews and everything was rosy so long as American and Jewish interests coincided. Right? But, but as we know, isolationism has darker sides to it. In politics, it's a, it's a desire to basically leave the world to its own problems. Why should America be the world's policeman? Should sound 
familiar. Um, it comes up again and again in American history. And that's why Congress actually rejected membership in the League of Nations, even though Woodrow Wilson after World War I was a major architect of the idea. In the end, Congress wasn't having it. We already fought over there in Europe and it's their problem. On a social level, this sort of ugliest manifestation of this isolation is what's called nativism in, uh, in American history. It's basically fear, dislike and exclusion of foreigners. It's nothing unfamiliar. And it has a, a, a reminiscent ring to it when you see it's a mix of economic competition for scarce resources and a cultural desire to claim American means WASP, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, right? It's very similar in that respect to some of the older veins of anti-Semitism. Um, and, and that's why, as we know, American immigration law in the years leading up to the Holocaust reflected the desire to basically shut the door. And, uh, and therefore, the desire by American Jews in the late 30s to find shelter in America for their brothers and sisters was very Jewish, but un-American. You understand? And there becomes a, a, like a split was very Jewish because they want to save their Jewish brothers and sisters, but it's un-American because the stance of America in the, in the mid to late thirties was the world has its problems. They're not our problems. We need to work this out on our own. Right? So, so, so Jews who were American Jews were torn on a brutally painful issue. Now that's all the sort of theoretical construct, because as the situation in Europe deteriorated, American Jewry began to walk on eggshells, because even though anti-Semitism in America never reached European scale, but it, it, it was quite real, and anti-Semitic leaders and movements began to grow on the fringes of American politics in the 30s, which is, of course, where they always begin. The, the difference is that in America, they have, until this point, remained on the fringes, not getting into recent you know, history and what you think about the role that anti-Semitism may or may not have played in the last 10 years of American politics, but, but it certainly it, they, they were on the fringes, but they were growing. And perhaps there's no better example than that of Father Charles Coughlin, right? Coughlin was a charismatic priest and political organizer interest in, in the 30s. In fact, he's one of the first American leaders to use the radio as a tool of um, sort of mass reaching a mass audience, and therefore mass political organization. This is a, a very reminiscent of the Nazi party, right? Who were very quick to understand the power of mass media in order to not only get their message across, but to create a collective movement. Um, and during the thirties, an estimated 30 million listeners tuned into his weekly broadcast. I want you to appreciate that. 30 million people, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but that's a significant percentage of the American populace. I mean, at this point, it's, it would be just shy of 10% and it, it would be significantly more. Somebody can Google what the population of America was in the 1930s, don't know. But, um, but it's a, that's a huge percentage. And they're tuning into these weekly broadcasts. At first, he was a vocal supporter of FDR and the New Deal because he thought that FDR was going to get them out of the Depression, right? But as the decade progressed, he became a pretty harsh critic of FDR, in particular claiming he was too friendly with the bankers, meaning the Jews, because Conklin wasn't just a radio personality. Um, he had, as I said, um, politics in mind. And post the 1936 election, he started expressing sympathy for the governments of Hitler and Mussolini. And, uh, and because he saw them as the only antidote to the Jewish conspiracy of communism. This is sort of like classic anti-Semitism. And in fact, so classic that he had a, a newspaper, a periodical. It was a, you know, that called Social Justice, interestingly enough, 
um, which reprinted the Protocols of the Elders of Zion in weekly installments. Now, after the outbreak of the war, World War II, meaning, right, FDR's administration managed to use its wartime powers to force the cancellation of Kaufman's radio station, but uh, and, and ban the distribution of social justice. But let's remember that 30 million people don't just disappear. They, they, they may not have their access to their radio station, but it, it only reinforces the sense that FDR is in the pocket of the Jews if one of the ways he uses his wartime powers is to shut down the guy who's telling the truth about the Jews. You understand how these things work, right? And of, of course, as, um, as uh, the... The um, as Matt pointed out here, right? The just to add to the context, because we're not diving into the anti-Semitism right now. It's not our main story, right? Is that America's biggest industrialist at the time was Henry Ford, who was also America's biggest supporter of Hitler, right? And also distributed the Protocols of the Elders of Zion in his own periodical. So the idea, in the minds of Stephen Wise and other leaders, that 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 speaking out vocally against what was happening to the Jews and trying to push the American administration to take action, which might not be perceived as in the interest of America's sort of national interests, would stoke anti-Semitism was not a fantasy, right? It was, it was a very present reality for them. That's one. So that's the fair side. What about the relationship with FDR? How much reality was that? Well, listen, FDR even then was a hero to American Jews. They had gained unprecedented access to the White House in his period. I mean, he appointed a Jew, Henry Morgenthau, as his secretary of treasury. We're not gonna get into the whole Jewish, why the treasury thing, but, um, and there was a deep personal relationship between Rabbi Stephen Wise and, and the and FDR, right? Wise basically embraced the role of Stadlan. He called FDR the boss. He called him the boss, which may sound affectionate, but to me is also a little bit icky, to be honest with you. Um, and now, we have to remember, to his credit, that Wise spoke out forcefully about the situation of the Jews in Germany from 1933. He was fighting to loosen immigration quotas. If you recall, um, he also fought in favor of the boycott of German goods. And that was really where Wise, in 1933, when, when Hitler first came to power and there was a wave of violence against Jews, if you don't recall, right, there was a boycott movement, uh, anti-Nazi boycott movement that began in America and swept through Europe was broken, interestingly, by the issue if we talked about that story. Um, but this is where Wise first sort of got sort of uh, exposed to the, the tension between his loyalty to sort of the New Deal and his, and his liberal, you know, uh, liberal vision and to FDR personally, and his role as the defender of Jewish interests. Um, because he, at the same time that he was backing the boycott, he could not afford to undermine the power and popularity of FDR. And so in order to make his job easier, he did two things. First of all, he assured FDR that he was toning down what he called the militancy of certain voices within American Jewry. And he urged FDR to at least verbally condemn the Hitler regime, something which FDR steadfastly refused to do. He, from the Nazi Olympics, to the Nuremberg rallies, to Kristallnacht, Roosevelt refused to condemn Hitler until they, until they waged war. Right? He said he was not going to speak out about Germany's, quote, internal affairs. Right? And furthermore, Secretary of State Cordell Hull in 1933 actually said a boycott was going to damage U.S. economic interests, meaning Jewish Americans protesting Hitler 
we're harming America. You understand the problem that Wise now faces? Now, was that true? Was it not true? Well, I'll leave that to you in your own analysis. But I, what I need you to understand is that this man who had based his entire power base and his ability to help his people, and, and he's been painted in pretty ugly, you know, by, with pretty ugly colors by many people since then. I, I don't want to necessarily weigh on that in right now. But one thing you do have to understand is that this is a man who had devoted his entire life to serving the Jewish people and was doing it the way he felt it should be done. Did he do it perfectly? Was he right? Well, let's see. So, um, like I said, his focus was on maintaining access to the White House, and that was all that would allow him to accomplish anything which could actually be accomplished. I mean, it's a very simple equation. Either you do what you can and protect your position, or you try to do more than you can and you lose your ability to affect things altogether. This is Stad Lanut in its essence. And he recognized that that might require turning a blind eye to what was happening in Europe in order to preserve his influence. But the reality is, according to most historians, that Wise was simply outmatched in, in personal politics by FDR, who was a master with people by all accounts. I mean, it, it, I hope it doesn't sound un-PC to you, but, but just, he, I mean, you're talking about a man who couldn't walk, who was arguably the most powerful president in American history. Right? Just think of the magnetism he was able to wield when most people sadly tend to look at someone who's physically disabled as somehow inferior. This man was able to rise to the heights of power. You know? um, and so you should understand the, the ability he had to wield personal influence. Right? Some in fact claim that FDR played wise basically a fiddle using flattery intermittent access to the White House, which he would cut off and then offer again, cut off. He called, you know, Wise by his first name, made him feel like he was a personal friend of the most powerful man on earth. But in the end of the day, he didn't actually give him what he wanted. I have a quote here that, um, that uh, the, what's his name? Um, Medoff in his book, um, oh, the Jews should, should, should keep quiet, right? Um, that Israel put out there. Right, um, he uses as I think it's in the opening of the book, if I recall correctly, that um, Wise sent a letter to his son in February of 1943. Says uh, that his, his other, his, his, his Justine and Chad, who were Wise's daughter and son-in-law, had dinner with the Roosevelts on Saturday, including the president. Then Wise writes, Justine, his daughter, said the president sends his affectionate regards to me. And then he adds, if only he would do something for my people. You hear that? You know, he has this sense of, of a warm, deep personal relationship and a complete incapacity to do anything with it that actually matters to something which matters to him. Now, so we have fear. We have protecting this particular the personal position. Then we have the question, or sorry, the personal relationship with Roosevelt in order to maintain his ability to influence, right? And, and, and then we have the question of his own leadership position within American Jewry. Now, like I said, Wise was a great believer in democracy, but he wasn't so tolerant of democratic dissent within the community. He basically assumed, like every good Stadlan before him, that his personal relationship with the president made him an indispensable leader, and therefore he should not be challenged. Uh, there are examples here, but in, for the sake of time, I'm not going to get to some of the sort of examples that I could bring to you from his rise to power. What's important, though, is that the greatest challenge to Wise's leadership and his entire strategy of Stadlanut actually came from a 30-year-old Israeli Jew, well, it wasn't Israeli yet, a Jew from, from the Yishuv 
by the name of Hillel Cook. So I'm going to pause briefly, though, because we only have a half hour left. If there, if there are clarifications people need before I get into the story of, of Hillel Cook and what's known as the Bergson Group. All right, I'm going to charge ahead. So Hillel Cook was born in, in Lithuania in 1915. He was the son, actually, of uh, Rabbi Dov Cook, who was the nephew of Rabbi Avonitzchak Cohen Cook. Um, sorry, who was the brother. He, Hillel Cook was the nephew. Sorry. He was, he was the nephew of, Rav, of famous Rav Cook, um, chief rabbi, uh, first Ashkenazi chief rabbi of mandatory Palestine. Right? In 24, his father and whole family came up to Israel. His father became the chief rabbi of Fula. They were a rabbinic family. Um, Israel, Israel was raised fittingly within the religious world. He went to Rav Cook's yeshiva, Merkaza Rav, in Jerusalem at the same time as he attended the Hebrew University. Um, and uh, apparently the Hebrew University made a deeper impression on him than, than uh, the yeshiva, uh, although, I mean, one could, one could uh, question that. But it was that Hebrew year that he became a member of a small group of students who later became core elements of the revisionist movement. They included David Raziel, who was that commander who first broke restraint, if you recall. Also, Avraham Yair Stern, head of the Lehi, or also known as the Stern Gang, which is not such a nice term for them, um, right? A, a, basically, as the situation began to deteriorate between Arabs, British, and Jews, Hillel Cook rose to be a founding member of the Irgun Savai Lumi, right, the militant faction of the, the revisionist movement. Um, he served as a commander in its fight during the 1936 Arab revolt that we discussed. He quickly rose to become a member of the general staff. Um, and he finally met Jabotinsky himself in Poland in 1937 where he'd gone to organize and fundraise on behalf of the Irgun and Javitinsky filled him with his inspiration and asked him to come to America to accompany him on his mission, which Javitinsky had been pursuing his entire life to create an independent Jewish fighting force. If you recall from our earlier discussions, Javitinsky had marginally succeeded in this toward the end of World War I, which the creation of the, of the Jewish Legion. And he really, as we'll speak about why in a moment, he really had this dream that as World War II was about to break out, that it was critical, actually by 1940, it had already broken out, it was critical to create an independent Jewish fighting force. But Jabotinsky, as we spoke about, died in 1940, had a heart attack in upstate New York. And Hillel Cook was left as the head of the Irgun and the revisionist mission in America. And um, as he described it himself, basically he was cut off from anything but the most sporadic communication with the Irgun command in the land of Israel. I mean, 1940, anyway, communications were very different than today. Plus there was a war going on, right? Um, and so therefore he described himself as the head of a cutoff battalion with a clear mission. That mission was to raise the Jewish army that had been Jabotinsky's life dream. Um, and it was a mission which conflicted directly with that of mainstream Zionist leadership in America, British imperial interests, and even American foreign policy. Now, what would you do if you had you were cut off from your leadership, you were basically a man alone, maybe with a handful of supporters, and your mission conflicted with the Zionist leadership around you, who you think would be your natural allies, the British Empire, and the American foreign policy? I don't know what you would do, but you know what he did? He doubled down and just worked harder. But he first he changed his name because he didn't want to embarrass his uncle. Because he knew what he was going to do was going to make waves and upset people. So he changed his name from Hillel Cook to Peter Bergson, which is maybe how some of you have heard of him. Um, and as Peter Bergson, right, he formed just a few days before Pearl Harbor and America's official entry into the war, 
He formed the Committee for a Jewish Army. And their, their claim is actually an important one to understand that I want to put on the board, even though it's not really our focus right now. Their claim was basically that the Jews of the mandate, meaning the Jews in the land of Israel, and those of Europe who had become homeless because of the war, had a right and a duty to a distinct fighting force which could join the Allies as a co-belligerent. Right? Because American Jews and, and, uh, and, uh, and British Jews, etc., could join the, the armies of their respective countries. But, but Jews of the land of Israel and, and now the Jews of you know, Central Europe had no home. And this is a part of a bigger discussion in the thought of Peter Bergson or Hillel Cook um, about the formation of an identity for Jews, what he called Hebrews, as opposed to Jews. And we're going to see this Hebrew stance opposed to the Jewish stance was something that he felt needed to be clarified. He was not a fan of this idea that every Jew is a latent citizen of the land of Israel. Not a fan at all. He felt there needed to be a, a sharp and clear distinction, not as a sort of like an amorphous religious people, but as a nation that it was going to be the Jews who fought for their independence with an independent force as co-belligerents who would be able to claim a national stake in the post-World War II world. Um, so, so he made waves right off the bat. I mean, press releases, full-page ads in major newspapers, making alliances with non-Jews, aggressive lobbying, all the no-nos of American Jewish leadership. These are all the no-nos. And uh, I mean, listen, to give you an example, um, he ran the, one of the first advertisements he ran in the New York Times, which was one of his favorite bases, even though New York Times was a notoriously anti-Zionist paper at the time, run by Jews, of course. Um, Jews fight for the right to fight, right? Um, now, eventually, Bergson joined forces with um, journalist and Hollywood screenwriter Ben Hecht. And, and a big plays and pageants theater became part of their strategy and their struggle for the Jewish army. Now, you're thinking, why are we talking about the Jewish army when this is the topic we've been speaking about right now is the American response to the Holocaust? Well, I'll tell you why. Because that struggle was hard enough. But in, in November of 1942, Bergson completely changed his course. What happened? August 8th, 1942. Remember, the Wannsee Conference is in January of 1942. Jan Karski and the Polish government's exiles publication of the mass extermination of Polish Jewry is in December of 1942. We're right between those things. So on August 8th, 1942, a telegram reached the British Foreign Office and the American State Department at the same time. It was sent by Gerhard Reiner. He was secretary of the World Jewish Congress. You recall that entity, right? Secretary of the World Jewish Congress in Geneva. And he sent it through the um, British Foreign Office and the State Department because they were both allowing the World Jewish Congress to use their communication channels in order to maintain links between Europe, Britain, and America, because otherwise the war had cut off every means of communication. And this is what that telegram said received alarming reports stating that in the Führer's headquarters, a plan has been discussed and is under consideration, according to which all Jews in countries occupied or controlled by Germany, numbering three and a half to four million should, after deportation and concentration in the East, be at one blow exterminated in order to resolve once and for all the Jewish question in Europe. And then he adds details, actions reported to be planned for the autumn, wait, stop. Ways of execution are being discussed, including use of prussic acid. Stop. We transmit this information with all necessary reservation, as exactitude cannot be confirmed by us. 
Our informant is reported to have close connections, et cetera, et cetera. Please inform, consult New York. It's a bombshell. Remember I told you that the, um, that the report by Jan Karski was the first word that the Western governments had? It wasn't true. I was setting you up. It was the first word that the Western governments were even vaguely forced to listen to because this cable, remember, was meant to get to the heads of the WJC via the State Department and the British office. Well, the head of the WJC in America was Rabbi Stephen Wise. He never got the telegram, not from the State Department. They didn't deliver it. He did, however, learn of the telegram through Jewish leaders in Britain. Now, what happened? Um, after the U.S. entered the war, FDR's administration basically took the position that aiding Jews trapped in Europe would divert resources from the military campaign against the Axis and would cause unnecessary political turmoil, domestic political turmoil. I mean, FDR was already fighting a battle of being labeled as in the pocket of the Jews. I Again, I, there's a whole analysis, as Israel pointed out, there have been a number of books um, written on the topic of FDR and the Jews. And, and frankly, as more and more documents are on earth, he looks less and less rosy. Um, that's not my topic right now. My point is, is that, that their stance was, at best, this is not worth fighting. We need to defeat the Nazis that will solve all problems. At worst, let's face it, as I pointed out to you before, the less Jews there were after the war, the less of a headache there would be for the allies in this messy question of what to do in the land of Israel. Um, and you can always throw in the fact that did they really love the Jews to begin with? But here is that when, when the um, Reigner cable got to the State Department, it wasn't just greeted with skepticism, which you could understand since it was an unsubstantiated claim, right? But it was actually greeted with obstructionism. They didn't want unwanted, they didn't want public pressure to act. So therefore the State Department simply didn't pass it on to Rabbi Stephen Wise. And the one top diplomatic official actually warned Wise might kick up a fuss if he found out. And so therefore he ordered the Geneva consulate, which had forwarded the, the, the telegram to begin with, not to transmit any more reports from Gerhard Reiner unless they were, quote, in the national interest, meaning letting American Jews know about what was happening to their brothers in Eastern and Central Europe was not in the American national interest. Um, now, but like I said, Reinhardt's for, Reiner, sorry, foresight in presenting the information not just to the Americans, but also the British consulate paid off because Stephen Wise did indeed find out. And he went immediately to Undersecretary of State Sumner Wells to report what he thought was new and vital information on what was happening to the Jews of Europe. Because remember, as far as he knew, the State Department didn't know because he'd gotten the information from, from, from Europe. He had, from Britain, sorry. He had no way of knowing the State Department knew well. They'd gotten the exact same telegram, right? He also wanted, and of course, what did Wise really want? A meeting with the president. Well, Wells never told him that, he, that he'd been sitting on that cable for almost three weeks, nor did Rabbi Wise get a meeting with the president. Instead, what Wells did was demand that the rabbi maintain secrecy while the State Department checked the cable's veracity. And Wise agreed and waited until November of 1942, three months later, right? October, September, October, November. Three months later, while the final solution was really moving toward its height, it's chilling to think about how many tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands of Jews died in those months. So when he finally received an authorization for the release 
of this information from the State Department. Robert Wiles held a, a press conference on the evening of November 24th, 1942. And the next day's New York Times reported this, the, the story on the 10th page. It was buried. And in fact, history has not been kind to Arthur Sulzberger, the owner of the Times, who was a Jew deeply committed to assimilation and equally opposed, therefore, to Zionism. He gets a lot of criticism for basically burying the story of the murder of the six million. And frankly, as far as I can tell, he deserves it. Right now, no, you know, Stephen Wise also gets a, a lot of criticism for not risking his personal relationship with FDR and doing more. Now, the, the, the press conference wasn't the only effort. Mainstream Jewish organizations did pick up the voice, sponsored rallies, mass meetings, but they would never directly challenge American policy. They did not want to make waves because the dominant model was Stad Lanut. You can't make this about a challenge because what, what could have happened was to stand up to the president and say, you're letting people die on your watch. This is inhuman. As we're going to see, is indeed what happened, but not coming from Rabbi Stephen Wise and the mainstream leaders of the Jewish community. You know, there's a, there's a grim comment recorded in the diary of Chaim Kaplan, which he wrote actually in the Warsaw Ghetto, and it was found in the Oneg Shabbos archives. He says, a joke is making the rounds. Ready for this? Stephen S. Wise is helping. He's ordered the American Jews to say Kaddish for the departed souls of Polish Jewry. His foresight is accurate. Remember Nahum Goldman's comment? There's nothing we can do. So the question is, was that really true? Because not every Jew was willing to sit there and assume there was nothing they could do while half of their brothers were slaughtered. Because Hillel Cook, who was fighting for a Jewish army and had heard rumors, as many Jews had heard, about what was happening in Europe, but had not had them confirmed. And, you know, at a certain point, he's the cutoff battalion. He's got a mission given to him, and let's face it, Jabotinsky wasn't just his leader, he was his Rebbe in the full sense of the word. He's, he's filled with a mission, but he was one day sitting, sipping a cup of coffee before his meeting on Capitol Hill in order to keep pushing this committee for the Jewish army forward. And he picks up the New York Times to have a read. I don't know what you're referring to there, Yisrael. Um, the, the, he, he picks up the New York Times to have a read with his coffee and discovers this story about the cable buried in the back pages. Like I said, the idea of Nazi murder was far from new, but this was different. It was a telegram confirmed by the US State Department that described the program for systematic extermination of European Jewry. And Hillel Cook was not a kind of man to take that sitting down. He picked up a phone and called the Assistant Secretary of State Adolf Burl, whom he'd met on a number of occasions to discuss his, ta his quest for the Jewish army. He wanted to make a meeting for that very morning. Right, um, and the, the doors of Washington were still open to Hillel Cook, even though, by the way, the British government had tried to discredit him and even many Jews of officialdom had done as well. Apparently Cook had a magnetism, he had a diplomatic bearing and a persistent force of character that simply couldn't be resisted. Um, so he, he got this meeting with Burl and asked if the news of the extermination was correct and received the reply, yes, there is no doubt that it's correct. And Bergson only had one question, what are you going to do about it? The answer was, what can we do, right? That's all the answer he got. And as we know, that became the majority voice of the US government and the mainstream leadership of American Jewry. Nothing can be done to save the Jews until we win the war. And any rocking of the boat, any causing of, of domestic conflict 
weakens the president, which weakens the military, which weakens our efforts to defeat the Nazis. Not an illogical statement, but it wasn't the only other way. Well, Peter Bergson refused to accept that. And the result was he completely reformed his mission and, 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 uh, and uh, formed the Emergency Conference to Save the Jewish People of Europe. He wasn't so good with acronyms, by the way. He could use some help there. Um, and, and it was basically the most dramatic political action campaign to that point in American Jewish history. He and his men were able to swiftly overcome the sort of incomprehensibility of what was happening in Europe and the inertia of the conventional thinking of what was permissible to do about it um, and basically move into, I don't know, a hectic mode. I mean, if the efforts of the Committee for the Jewish Army had been strenuous, then the activities of this emergency, emergency conference were frenzied, lobbying, propaganda, fundraising, et cetera. You know, Bergson liked to call himself a nuisance diplomat. He was a nuisance diplomat. And his, um, his activities provided a real nuisance to the Roosevelt administration, right? And the leadership of American Jewry who were claiming that saving the Jews was impossible. Just to give you an example, there was a report that the Romanian government was prepared to ship 70,000 Jews to a safe haven as long as the allies were willing to cover the expenses. And this was not acted upon. 70,000 Jews. So when Bergson heard about it, he took out a, a, a full page advertisement in the New York Times with the headline, for sale to humanity, 70,000 Jews guaranteed human beings at $50 a piece. That I think is all you need to know in order to understand the tools that he was bringing to bear. Now, this was not taken well by Stephen Wise and the mainstream leadership of Jewry. On one hand, there is a genuine uh, like Machloket here. Let's just remember that. There's the Stadlan model, which had proven itself over a couple thousand years that, that if, when it comes to survival, a posture of powerlessness is a means of surviving. So that can't be ignored. And you put that up against the whole essence of the Zionist effort with Peter Bergson, Hillel Cook represented, which is the upright fighting Jew. That, and, and remember our discussion as, as Israel sort of called me out at the end that even asking the question of whether the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising was successful is offensive because the reality is to struggle is to succeed, no matter what the outcome. That's, that's, that is the attitude which is represented by Peter Bergson here. You know, at one point, Wise declared that Bergson was worse than Hitler, right? Because why? His provocative protests, like marching through the streets, et cetera, were increasing anti-Semitism and weakening FDR at, during the war, right? And, and in fact, they made constant efforts to get the administration to draft him or deport him, as they said, right? Um, now, the Bergson group, on their end, charged that beyond their fear and sort of stadlanut posture, they felt the American Jewish leaders were reluctant to have those kinds of Jews in America. Samuel Merlin, who was uh, Bergson's associate, he put it this way. He said, they weren't interested in people who were behaving in embarrassing ways, old world European Jews. Whatever it may be, um, they, the feeling on the behalf of the mainstream leadership was that the, the Bergson group was basically all about sensationalism and recklessness. And further, they argued that foreigners have no right to speak for American Jews. And part of the sort of underlying tension here, which I guess we're just gonna have to leave as a statement and not analyze too deeply, is well, what constitutes the national leadership, right? Meaning, uh, Stephen Wise is an American Jewish leader. Nobody argues with that. 
However, he is also head of the World Jewish Congress, as we said from the beginning, an attempt to create a democratic base for world Jewry, but it doesn't include the land of Israel and the Zionist embodiment of a national existence in our homeland. Peter Bergson actually believes ultimately in his heart that there are Hebrews and there are Jews and never the two shall meet. And that what Zionism is attempting to do is create a Hebrew nation, just like there's a, a French nation. And, a, and by the way, Bergson, Bergson lived straight through to, I think, 2001, he might have died. Um, and to his dying day, believed that one of the great failures of Zionism was its inability to draw a distinction between Hebrews and Jews. Because as he pointed out, that if we were a Hebrew nation, then you could have a Muslim 100% member of a Hebrew nation. But you can't have a Muslim 100% member of a Jewish nation because they're different things, right? And, and his thought is actually quite noteworthy. And, and, and in many ways, he was a visionary who, like most visionaries, was ignored, if not downright erased. He was erased from American Jewish history up until relatively recently. So moving on with our story, aside from their conflict, on March 9th, 1943, things hit a boil. Why? Because it was now we're only a month before the liquidation of the Warsaw Ghetto at this point, right? And, and on that night, thousands of thousands of people filled Madison Square Garden to watch a pageant, part play, part drama, part just over the top, you know, dramatic presentation um, produced by Ben Hecht. It was called We Will Never Die. Now, the cast ultimately performed the same show again for a second sold out performance that began at 11.15 and the radio was broadcasting it to the world while there was an overflow throughout cloud in the theater. You know, it's beyond comprehension. The, the level of tens of thousands of people actively participating, and I'll describe the show in a second. And beyond that, the, the emergency conference had convinced New York Governor Thomas Dewey to proclaim the day of the pageant an official day of mourning for the Jews of Europe in New York State. Now the show opens with the narrator saying the following, we are here to say our prayers for the two million who have been killed in Europe. And then 20 rabbis stood up, the audience being told they had escaped from Europe, recited the Shema, standing on risers in front of two 40-foot-high tablets of the Ten Commandments. I mean, this is, this is what we're dealing with here. It's the exact opposite of everything that American Jewish leadership had done to this point. They're not only putting it in your face, they're hammering you over the head with the narrator says there will be no Jews left in Europe for representation when peace comes. The four million left to be killed are being killed, right? No voice is heard to cry, halt the slaughter. No government speaks to bid the murder of human beings to end. But we here tonight have a voice, let us raise it. And the next morning, the conference published a full page ad in the New York Times once again, stating the success of the show showed that the conspiracy of silence surrounding Jewish disaster in Europe is definitively broken. It will be sinful if we do not agree upon a policy of action to save the millions who have survived. You have just thrown down the ultimate card to remember America is a very religious place. And, to, to, and they're speaking to Jews and non-Jews, sinful. Basically, you are now facing a moral dilemma and the, product, the production of, the, of we, will not, we Will Never Die was, was a, a huge success. It, it toured six major cities after its opening. Eleanor Roosevelt, diplomats from 40 nations 
congressmen filled Constitutional Hall in Washington, D.C. for the production there. But, you know, the, the perhaps uh, real conflict point between Bergson and Weiss personally came in their only meeting that's ever been documented, at least. Maybe they met otherwise. The only meeting that was documented was that following the, the production as part of its, its, um, its play in Washington, Bergson's group organized a march of 500 Orthodox rabbis from the Capitol to the White House. Now, again, you're thinking, I don't know, I grew up with marching Jews. It's like not such a big deal. There's a whole other story here of how the movement for the freeing Soviet Jewry owes a huge debt to the Bergson group in terms of laying the framework for how Jews access political power in America. But, but um, for 500 Orthodox rabbis to march in the middle of Washington, D.C. in 1943, for many Jews, was the ultimate embarrassment and nothing they wanted to see. And Wise actually confronted Bergson and said to him, Mi is ish sar aleinu. Who appointed you a leader and a judge upon us? Now, anybody know who said those words first? Or to whom they were said? To Samuel. Korach. Well, it's probably Tatan and Aviram. It was, it was Tatan and Aviram who, when Moshe kills the slave master. And then the next day he sees the two Jews arguing, right? And he says, oh, don't hit your friend. One of them looks at him and says, who made you boss? Meaning Rabbi Stephen Wise, who was a knowledgeable Jew, obviously, quoted Datan and put Peter Bergson in the position of Moshe. He said, who, me samcha. And you know what Bergson's answer was? No one. That's why I'm free to pursue my conscience. So now, but Bergson wasn't just interested in sensationalism. He wanted to change policy. In, in, um, in, in April of 1943, there was another conference on the refugee situation in Europe. It was called the Bermuda Conference. Unlike the Avion Conference, this one was a closed door affair. It was basically between the United States and Great Britain. Um, and the question of what to do with the Jews who had been liberated by the Allies and those who remained under Nazi occupation was the question at hand. And the only agreement was we have to win the war. There was no change in U.S. immigration policy, and there was no change in opening the gates of mandatory Palestine to Aliyah, meaning win the war. And as many historians claim, the less Jews that are left afterwards, the easier the problem will be to solve. You know, those words were never said, but according to many historians, they were directly implied. Um, now, in response to that, the Bergson Group once again used its newspaper power to, and it took out an ad it said, we all stand before the bar of humanity, history, and God's will will be judged blood guilty if we do not create the machinery to save the Jewish people of Europe. They sponsored, not long after, a six-day conference in New York City. 1,500 people took part. I'm saying this to you to point out that there's a basic failure of mainstream American leadership, Jewish leadership, to appreciate the degree to which their constituency, as it were, cared Meaning it's all well and good for Nahum Goldman to say half of American, uh, half of world Jewry can't do anything. But Peter Bergson proved that they could. And, and it's not that Nahum Goldman was an evil person who didn't care. It's that perhaps he was simply too stuck in the way he knew the world to change. And remember, you know what happens to people who are stuck and can't change when the world, when the world moves? You go extinct. This is a story of the evolution of survival Zionism. And Peter Bergson's willingness to make noise and speak truth to power and to disrupt 
and to make unhappy alliances, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is, is part of that evolution. So um, ultimately, he formed now emergency committee as opposed to conference for, for, the, uh, for the rescue of the Jews of Europe. And it would boast more than 125,000 active members and supporters. That's a lot of people, right? Including major personalities like New York Mayor, Mayor LaGuardia. Um, I, I've got other names down here, but I don't want to list them all because I only have a few minutes. I've got to wrap this up. What happens is, is as the pressure increases and it becomes apparent that Bergson and his group of non-Jewish political supporters are able to put bills in front of the House and in front of the Senate to demand the creation of a, um, a, some sort of commission to rescue the Jews of Europe, right? And they keep hammering away as these bills are entered in November 9th of 1943 in the New York Times. How well are you sleeping? You want victory for Hitler? Time races death. They're just hammering away at the conscience here, right? As this happens, they are aided by none, no, a personality no less than Secretary of Treasury Henry Morgenthau, Jew and longtime supporter of Roosevelt, whose employees discover that the State Department has been actively thwarting efforts to inform the world about the extermination of the Jews and even has been lying about how many visas were issued to European Jews. And Morgenthau, his, his department prepares a report entitled Report to the Secretary on the Acquiescence of the Government to the Murder of the Jews. And he basically goes to FDR and says, you have a choice. You can create a committee for the rescue of the Jews, or you can face the biggest political scandal of your life when this report gets released. And indeed, in January of 1944, FDR issues an executive order creating the War Refugee Board. The War Refugee Board is probably most famous for working with Raoul Wallenberg. And according to many historians, it managed to save upwards of 200,000 Jews, which is a lot. But ask yourself, what would have happened if the War Refugee Board had been founded in August of 1942, when Gerhard Reigner's telegram reached the United States State Department? Because this idea that half of world Jewry had to sit by because there was nothing they could do about the slaughter of the other half was essentially rooted in the assumption that powerlessness was the base of power in exile. And what Peter Bergson brought to the dynamic of American Jewry, which plays itself out to this day, was a recognition that that's simply not true, that there's another way of being, which is insisting on not only your rights as Jews and human beings, but your rights as citizens of a democracy to employ all means within the law in order to make change. And indeed, change they make. So it's 12.15, and I have to stop there. It's a passionate story with a lot more to be said, but I thank you for your focus. And we have one more class ahead, not this coming week, because everyone should have a wonderful Chag Sameach, but the week after we'll close with the introduction of the struggle for liberation back in the land of Israel. Before I sign off, I want to thank a few people. I want to thank all the folks that give their hard-earned money to make this show possible, keep it free, make it widely available, I want to invite you to join them. Go to my website, jewishstory.co, and you'll see a button in the upper right-hand corner that says, Be a Patron. You can click on that to make a little bit of per-podcast support. I'd also like to invite you while you're there to sign up for Jewish Story Live, the upcoming weekly live class is beginning on August 8th. It's going to be a whole lot of fun. I want to thank... The Land of Israel Network, that's thelandofisrael.com, for creating a platform that allows me to reach so many wonderful people. I want to thank the Pardes Institute, P-A-R-D-E-S dot org dot I-L, 
building an educational institution that gives me the privilege of teaching so many fantastic Jews. And I want to thank you for listening. I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story.